passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Um, so I'm going to start with a, a story that happened a couple weeks ago. It was Monday nights um, a few weeks ago, and my wife and I, we were attempting to do uh, the impossible. We were going to try to make dinner for all of our family and not hear a single complaint, while also providing some sort of nu nutritional value uh, for our kids. And, and we'll, we'll be honest, we knew this was a fruitless endeavor, so we just decided, hey, well, let's just make something we want to make or we want to eat. And so we decided on some sort of uh, Mexican dish. I think it was a burrito skillet. And, and I, after that, I, I'm dicing these onions and, and green peppers. And my wife leans over to me and she says, uh, she points at the recipe and says, hey, just so you know, uh, last time we, we had this, the kids, uh, the, the kids didn't like it. Uh, they didn't like the salsa specifically. And so this time, uh, don't add the salsa and we'll see how this goes. And, and when she said that, like the moment she said that, I, I realized, all right, this is my chance. This is, this is the key right here to, to threading this needle between lying and telling the truth and getting what I want, which is a, a peaceful night at the table. And so over the next five, ten minutes, my kids come up to me one after the other, and, and they say, hey, Dad, what are you having for supper? Or what are we having for supper? And there's this liturgy that our family practices um, at supper, and I use that term lightly. Uh, liturgy is just something that you know, happens over and over and over again. So this is our liturgy when it comes to supper time. First thing is, a, a, it's like a, a call and response that you see in some traditional churches. Uh, what are we having for supper? Is the call of, of the child, and, and we'll respond with what we're having. So this case, a burrito skillet. And uh, the, the next response is, have we had this before? And in this case, the answer is yes. And then after that, the 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 final part of the response is, anyone guess? Did we like it? All right, yes, okay. So you also practice this liturgy at home. And I said, all right, this is our chance. This is our moment right here. I, I, can, I can, you know, masterfully, you know, work my way in here. And so I said, well, no, you didn't like it. But, 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 but before, you know, this gets out of control. You said next time we had this, or you said you didn't like the salsa, so we decided not to make the salsa, and, and um, we'll see how this goes. And, and the kids were skeptical. But, but thankfully, they were willing to give it a shot, and they did, and they ate all of it. And yet, later that night, I got to thinking about this sermon, about lying, about deceit. And I started to wonder, is that what I just did to my kids? Is... Is what I told my kids a form of lying? Did I massage the truth just enough to get what I wanted from them? Even though what I wanted from them was a really good thing. I had their best interest in mind. It's not, it's not wrong of me to want my kids to eat food. But did I lie or deceive my kids? And those are the types of questions that we'll be looking at this morning as we consider this idea of, of lying and deceit and telling the truth and, and uh, how do we faithfully follow Jesus as people of the truth by using our words to tell the truth, not to, to use them for deceit. And we find ourselves, again, in the midst of this series, as Jeremy mentioned, 
on the importance of our words, and our, our words matter a great deal to God. And the reason why our words matter so much to God is because, as Jesus gives us the answer in Matthew chapter 12, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, God cares about our words because he cares about our hearts. God cares about what you say because he cares about your heart. Oftentimes, our words give the clearest picture, the clearest description of what our hearts are like. And what comes out of your mouth first has to bubble up out of your heart. And when you say something that you almost instantly regret, and you, you say, I cannot believe I just said that, here's the really sobering news. God says, yeah, I can believe you said that. Because what comes from your heart will inevitably work its way out of your mouth. As we consider the importance of word, we, we look at, at how we use our tongues on an almost daily basis. Truth is, is such an important, important thing, and, and maybe never more so in history than today. We, we live in this culture where lying occurs on, on like a daily basis. It's almost second nature for us to just massage the truth, to communicate things the way we want them to be communicated. This starts with kids. A child who can barely talk is able to lie, maybe not well, to their parents. We live in a society, a culture today, that doubts whether truth is, is knowable or even if it exists. We live in a world where any opinion that we disagree with is shouted down with cries of fake news. We live in a world where, where Pilate's words to Jesus right before his crucifixion, what is truth? That's like the air that we breathe as a people today. We live in an age where companies will gladly lie or deceive you about what their product can actually do. Govern governing officials will make promises that they never intend on keeping. People will lie about their ages. They will uh, lie or, or, or embellish things on their resume, and we could go on and on and on and on. What if, what if we were an altogether different people? What if we were known in our relationships with others, in our interactions with other people? What if we were known as a people of the truth? That's what we're going to consider this morning. We're going to consider it by asking two questions. First, we're going to consider what, is, what does it even mean to lie? What is a lie? And then second, we're going to consider why this matters so much to God. So let's pray as we jump in this morning. God of truth, we do ask that you would come and speak to us so that we might hear and respond to the gospel. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would use your word to accomplish the necessary work of transforming our words and also our hearts to be a people who not only speak the truth, but also rejoice in the truth. We ask that you would be at work in each of us, God, that you would reveal to every single person this morning specific ways that we can more faithfully follow you this week by being a people of the truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's start by considering what exactly a lie is. Here's a definition um, that I have found helpful. It's one that we'll come back to time and time and time again this morning. Uh, 
lying is this. It's any sort of speech that will accomplish a desired result without any regard to its truthfulness. Let me say that again. Lying is any speech that will accomplish a desired result without any regard to its truthfulness. So this actually means that there's a whole spectrum of what lying actually is. There's a pastor in the Chicago suburbs. His name is Colin Smith. He, he helpfully describes falsehood like a railroad track that has a number of different stations or stops on that track. And many of us, uh, maybe none of us, will, will get off at that final destination, that final stop on the railroad, that, that station that's called perjury in a court of law that condemns an innocent person to death. And yet every single one of us travels from station to station. We're, we, we're somewhere on this railroad line of falsehood and dishonesty. Lying is any speech, any sort of speech, that we use to accomplish a desired result without any regard to its truthfulness. A couple of weeks ago when we started this series, we looked at the book of James. We saw James's powerful words on the tongue. And one of the things that James does in James chapter 3 is he uses two illustrations that describe the disproportionate power of the tongue. That the tongue wields far more power than its size proportionate to its body. Notice this from James chapter 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. But notice that both of these illustrations, this, this idea of a bit in the mouth of horses and a rudder guiding the ship, they're not just about the disproportionate power of the tongue compared to its size. They also tell us that the tongue is controlled by something else. This is made explicit in verse 4. The rudder is controlled by the will of the pilot. And in the exact same way, when it comes to our tongues, our tongues, the direction of our words, it's set by something. There is a will directing where our words go. Now here's where this, or what this has to do with lying. When we speak, every single one of us has a core commitment. There is a number one priority for every single one of us when we open our mouths. And what that priority is will determine the direction of what we say. So when we speak, we will either be committed to the truth or we will be committed to something or someone else. So just consider two examples from the Bible that reveal this, that show this, this core commitment will, will determine whether you tell the truth or whether you lie. The first one is found in 2 Kings chapter 5. Let me go ahead and set the scene for you. The army general of Syria, Syria being one of Israel's biggest enemies, he's suffering from this serious skin disease called leprosy. This man named Naaman becomes aware through God working behind the scenes that in Israel, there is a possibility for him to be healed. There is a prophet in Israel named Elisha. And so he travels to, Elisha, uh, to Israel, to Elisha, in order to be healed of his disease. And Elisha the prophet tells him, you know what, go ahead and wash in the Jordan River, do it seven times, and that will be an act of faith. You are stepping out in faith. 
and God will respond to your faith and he will heal you miraculously. And if you read the story, you'll notice it takes Naaman a fair bit of convincing, but eventually he does exactly what Elisha asks him to do. He goes to the Jordan River, he washes seven times, and he's healed. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 15. Then Naaman returned to the man of God, that is Elisha, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he, Elisha, Elisha refused. So here's Naaman. He's, he's overcome with gratitude, and he, he wants to pay Elisha for his services. He's, he's overflowing with, with thanksgiving, and he wants to direct that thanksgiving somewhere. He says, so Elisha, please, please, let me give you a gift as a way of saying thank you. But Elisha understands that he didn't do anything. Elisha was not the one who healed him. God was, and so he refuses to accept this present from Naaman. More than that, I think, he recognizes that Naaman, as this person who's just now first encountered this God of Israel, the true God, knows that he can make or break Naaman's faith. That if he tell, or if he accepts this gift from Naaman in this moment, Naaman is going to see this God as transactional. That if Naaman wants something from this God, then he has to pay him for it. Or if God does something for Naaman, then Naaman owes him and has to pay him back. And Elisha is like, no, 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 that's not how this God works. And so he refuses over and over again to accept payment from Naaman. Now let's skip down to verse 19. Elisha said to him, that is Naaman, go in peace. But when Naaman had gone from him a short distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian and not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi followed Naaman, and when Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me to say, There have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. And Naaman said, be pleased to accept two talents. And he urged him and tied up two talents of silver in two bags with two changes of clothing and laid them on two of his servants. And they carried them before Gehazi. And when he came to the hill, he took them from their hand and put them in the house and he sent them in away and they departed. He went in and stood before his master and Elisha said to him, where have you been Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. But he said to him, did not my heart go with you? Go when the man turned from this chariot to meet you. Was it a time to accept money and garments, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper like him. There's a whole lot we could look at in this passage. For our purposes this morning, just look at verse 22. Verse 22 focuses on the lie of Gehazi. And he said... All is well. My master has sent me to say, there have just now come to me from the hill country of Ephraim two young men of the sons of the prophets. 
Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothing. Now, Elisha said nothing of the sort. In fact, Elisha said the exact opposite. So why does Gehazi say this to Naaman? Well, we actually see the reason for his lie in verse 20. Notice the reason behind his lie. Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, See, my master has spared this name in the Syrian in not accepting from his hand what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So why does Gehazi lie? Well, according to the very last phrase there, it is to get something from Naaman. In other words, Gehazi is not committed to the truth. He's committed to himself. Go back to the, the language of James chapter 3. What is the pilot? The will of the pilot that directs the tongue of Gehazi. What leads him to lie? What causes him to lie? What is the, the number one priority in Gehazi's life? Greed. It's what he can get out of Naaman. If you read verse 20, you might notice that there's probably a little bit of retribution here. I can't believe God would do this for someone who is a pagan like Naaman. We're going to make him pay for all the Syrians have done to the people of Israel. Gehazi is not committed to the truth. He's not committed to what is good. He's committed to himself. Another example from the book of Acts in the New Testament, very similar moment. I'm just going to read the first half of this story in Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. The rest of the story in Acts chapter 5 actually tells us the exact same thing happened to Ananias' wife, Sapphira. Now here, the reason for the lie isn't as explicit as it is with Gehazi, but it's relatively easy to understand why he lies, especially if you just got done reading Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 ends with this description of this common practice in the early church to do whatever was necessary to meet the needs of your brothers and sisters in the church. And for many people, that meant selling everything that you had and giving to the apostles, giving to the church, and they would distribute to make sure there was no one who had a need in the church. Acts chapter 4 actually tells us about a man named Barnabas who does exactly that. The language at the end of Acts chapter 4 and the beginning of Acts chapter 5, very, very clear that you're supposed to read these in connection. So Acts chapter 4, Barnabas just makes this incredible offer of sacrifice. He sells everything, and he gives all of the money to the church, and Ananias and Sapphira are standing there watching that, and they say, whoa, 
Look at the response. Look at how everyone was thankful for what Barnabas did. What about us? And so they start down that same path. They sell their property, and then they keep some of it aside, which isn't wrong in and of itself. God never said you had to do that. God never said, sell everything and give it to the apostles' feet. In this moment, the lie doesn't come from from what they're doing or what's wrong doesn't come from what they're doing. It it comes from the lie that they they sold. They sold it for, you know, $60,000 or whatever the case was, and they said, well, we actually sold it for $45,000. Again, those numbers are just made up. Again, we look at what their their heart was, why they, they lied, why they did this, and we see it's because they wanted to look the part of being spiritually mature while at the same time holding back a portion of the money for themselves. In other words, they lied so that they could save face. The other night at the dinner table, I was talking to my kids in preparation for this series, and I just said, hey, why do people lie? And the answers, the responses they gave were were awesome. And it's not just kids. It was true of, of all of us as well. They said, well, you know, people lie because they're afraid of getting in trouble. So they cover their tracks. People lie because they want to cover up something that they did that was wrong. People lie so that they can get what they want. People lie because they want to tell people what they want to hear. And that's exactly what happened with Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. Why did they lie? Because they knew what everyone else was doing, and they wanted to fit in. They lied in order to get what they wanted. This is why we define lying as any speech that we use to accomplish a desired result regardless of its truthfulness. The focus is of a lie is not on the truth, but how you can use your words to get what you want. Another example of this, it's not directly related to the tongue, but I can't help but think of this famous uh, Saturday evening post cover from Norman Rockwell in October 1936. Let's go ahead and show this. Um, if you look here, it, it really gets at the heart of what lying is. Notice what's taking place in this photo. Both the butcher and the customer are watching the scale. Both of them have the faintest hint of a smile on their face, but they both have a little secret. What's the woman doing? Well, she's pushing up on the scale. The man, the butcher, is pushing down on the scale. They're, they're trying to get a, just a little bit more out of this deal. She's trying to get a better deal for herself. You know, I'm not actually paying for that much turkey. I'm actually paying for this much. And he's like, no, you're actually paying for this much turkey. And they're smiling because they, they think that they got it. They think that they got the other person. And it's funny. It's lighthearted. It's meant to convey the countless ways that we cut corners. We may spin the truth in order to get what we want. But we look at this picture in the context of God's commitment to the truth, and we realize that both the man and the woman are sinning against one another. They don't have their chief concern being the truth. Their chief concern is what they want, what they can get out of the other person. 
And this idea of lying, that it focuses on our desired result rather than on the truth, opens up the definition of lying to be a whole lot broader than what we might originally think when it comes to lying. So I just want us to consider a handful of areas where where we're talking about falsehood here, where we're tempted to use our words in a way to get what we want rather than a concern for the truth, in addition to just flat out telling a lie. The first one is this, it's deceit. Deceit would be when we massage the truth, whether that means we're only sharing certain aspects and omitting other parts of the story, or where we word things in such a way that it might be technically true, but if there was an outside impartial observer watching, hearing what we said, and they also saw what took place, they would say, hey, that's not at all an accurate description of what took place. Cable news is a great example of this. It's not technically lying, but it's not giving the full picture either. Growing up, my parents always told me, stress the importance of not lying. They would say, you know, we can't guarantee you won't get in trouble if you do something wrong, but we can guarantee that you will get in far more trouble if you do something wrong. We find out about it, and we found out you lied. And so I took that to heart as a kid, except when I didn't. I tried not to lie to my kids, or to my, well, I try not to lie to my kids either, but I tried not to lie to my parents, but at the same time, whenever I needed to, I would massage the truth. I would leave out certain details, or I would word things in a certain way that would paint me in the most favorable light in order to avoid trouble. We deceive ourselves if we think that we are being truthful. When we present a picture of the truth that is so twisted that we come out looking good when it has very little to do with what actually happened. Go back to our definition of lying. Lying is any speech that we use to accomplish our desired result regardless of the truth. If we wonder whether we are guilty of deceit, it's time for a heart check. When we share something, we're like, did I, did I just deceive that person? Well, ask yourself, am I sharing this information in a way to accomplish a desired result? Am I, am I massaging the truth so that I come out looking better than I really should? Am I committed to the truth? Is there any additional information that if it was shared, it would change people's opinion or their perception of me? Deceit, at its core, is the misuse of the truth in order to get what we want. Another area of lying. Exaggeration. Surely none of you who fish have done this before. I catch myself exaggerating all the time. All the time I, I find myself exaggerating. I love a good story. But many times the truth isn't good enough of a story. And so in order to impress people or to get a laugh or to catch someone's attention, we have a tendency to inflate the truth. We can read the room relatively well, and we can see what will get a laugh. And so with just one or two minor tweaks to the truth, it's not going to hurt anyone. We can get the laugh that we're looking for. 
Let me share an example of this from my own life. It wasn't necessarily for a laugh. Uh, when I first uh, became a pastor, I was incredibly self-conscious about my age. All right? I uh, was 25 when I first started, and uh, I was very aware of my lack of experience. And so when I would be preaching and I'd tell a story from my past, one of the things that I would do is round up the number of years that had passed since that experience. So something that took place six years ago became a little less than 10 years ago, or something that had taken place 18 months ago was years ago. Again, not technically lying, but very misleading as well. I remember one time someone actually approached me after a sermon, and I was talking about this uh, stuff, I, this mission trip I had taken to Guatemala, and they said, what were you, like 12 when you went to Guatemala? And that's when it hit me, oh, you know, you've got to stop exaggerating, man. You catch the heart between, behind all of these things. Again, consider the definition of lying. It's any speech that we use to accomplish a desired result without regard to its truthfulness. And again, exaggeration fits the bill. Our concern isn't so much for the truth as it is for a good story, or in my case with all of those, it's to make me look more impressive than I actually was. To make ourselves look better than we actually are. One third area that I want us to, to look at as well, and, and it's closely related to exaggeration, and that is flattery. Flattery. I'm going to uh, lump in white lies here as well. You know, if gossip is saying behind someone's back what you would never say to their face, flattery is saying to someone's face what you would never say behind their back. And that is, again, a misuse of the truth. It's a misuse of the truth to accomplish our own ends. Oftentimes, we will flatter people in order to put them in our relational debt that they will feel obligated to repay, either by flattering us or by doing something for us, or if we find ourselves in the midst of conflict or an argument, they will feel obligated to be on our side. The idea of flattery spills into the topic of little white lies. Now, before I, I say this, I just want to preface what I'm about to say as this is an imagined example, okay? This is not true of Jordan. Let me be very clear, it's not true of Jordan. That said, let's imagine that your friend has a new baby and you, for whatever reason, don't think newborns are cute. I just, you just don't understand why are newborns considered to be cute. And yet you know culturally what you're supposed to say when you meet that baby. Culturally, you are expected to say, man, that's one cute baby. What do you do? Do you say it anyway? Or do you say, I don't think babies are cute? That's not a great idea either. Many times we use white lies. We use white lies as a way to avoid the hard work of actually engaging in conversation. We will respond with the culturally expected appropriate response rather than looking for something unique, uniquely truthful 
and gracious and not flattering, but complimentary in our speech. You can be complimentary without flattering or without using white lies. So say, he looks just like you. Don't say that if you think babies don't look cute. You can think of a way to compliment the person. Yeah, don't, don't say that. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, Crystal is good at this, my wife Crystal. The, a, couple, a couple weeks ago, I was getting ready for the Cherish Center's Cherish Daughters dance uh, with my daughter, and um, I'm hopeless when it comes to dressing for nice occasions. So I came out all dressed and said to Crystal, what do you think? And she responded in a way that wasn't a white lie, it wasn't flattery, it was truthful, but it was also gracious. She said, why don't we go back to the closet and look for something else? But more importantly than that, she said, you know what, I love that shirt, why don't you wear that? It took more work for her in that moment than to just say, hey, yeah, you look fine. Truth takes more work than a white lie, but it is always better. When it comes to flattery, when it comes to white lies, we must again go back to our definition of life and examine our hearts. Am I using my speech in a way to accomplish a desired result without regard to truthfulness? Ask the Lord help you use your speech in a way that will glorify him and build others up, not through falsehood, not through flattery, but through the truth. Let's consider briefly a second question. Why does this matter so much to God? Why does all this matter to God? It's clear that it does matter to God. Revelation chapter 21 tells us that liars will be those who are facing the eternal judgment. Proverbs chapter 6 lists lying as one of the things that God hates. Why does telling the truth matter so much to God? Two reasons as we consider the testimony of Scripture. One is a vertical reason. The other one is a horizontal reason. The vertical reason is this. Truth-telling matters to God because he is a God of truth. God himself is fully and utterly committed to the truth. We never have to wonder if God is going to be deceitful. We never have to wonder if God is telling us half-truths, if God is exaggerating, if God is stretching the truth. In Titus, Paul is writing to the church and he's assuring the church of the confidence that we can have that God will keep his promises. And you know what he runs to as proof positive that God keeps his promises? Titus chapter 1. In hope of eternal life. That's the promise. Eternal life. Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The same is true in the book of Hebrews. The author points to God's trustworthiness as the evidence that these promises that God has made that aren't yet here for us, we can trust that they're going to come someday. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. How can we possibly hope to please the God of truth if we don't take truth as seriously as he does? 
Jesus himself talks about how important the truth is to our discipleship and following him. He says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. A commitment to the truth in every moment shows our allegiance to the God of truth. And yet, just as significantly, if we are committed to falsehood, a disregard of the truth, it reveals different allegiances. Later in John chapter 8, Jesus says this, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Any form of lying, from perjury all the way down to massaging the truth to make us look a little bit more impressive than we actually are, to make situations a little less uncomfortable than the truth would make them. And this is going to sound strong, but hear me out. Any deceit or lying is satanic. That's what we see from Genesis chapter 3, the serpent's tactics in the garden with Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve. Notice what he says. Or notice what the scriptures say. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. Notice the serpent's tactics here. First, in verse 2, he casts doubt on the character of God. He intentionally misinterprets the word of God. He knows the answer, and yet he has ulterior motives, and so he conceals the truth in this question that he asks in the assumption that he makes about God's character, that God is not good, but God is one who withholds from his creation. This is followed by an untruth for the woman in verse 3. In her rebuke of the serpent here, she gets half the truth, and yet she's already fallen for the lie about God's character. God doesn't even want us to touch the truth, the fruit in the middle of the garden. It's not true at all. It's another untruth started by the deception of the serpent himself. Then you get to verse 3 and verse 4, and you look at the serpent's words here, or excuse me, verse 4 and verse 5, it, it culminates in this outright lie from the serpent. The serpent rejects the truth of, of God's word, and he paints this new picture of what truth actually is, what life is actually like. He casts doubt on God and his character through deceit in verse 2, and then he downright lies and rejects the truth later on. And the rest is, of course, history. Truth matters to God because God is utterly committed to the truth. There's another reason God cares about the truth, and it's because truth is essential for our relationships with others. It is essential for any and every relationship that you have. Whether it is employee, employer, husband, wife, parent, child, you name it. The truth is the bedrock upon which any workable relationship functions. 
conversely, falsehood will erode away at all relationships. As the popular quote says, a single lie discovered is enough to create doubt in every true friend. Truth on its own, of course, is not enough. Paul reminds us that we have to speak the truth in love. Truth must be shared in a way that seeks the good of our neighbor. Truth is powerful. It can be used to save, and it can be used to kill. It can be used as a rescue device. It can be used as a club or a sword. The best use of the truth is when in love we share it out of a concern for our neighbor, even when it is painful for us and them to hear. Not as a way to prove our own rightness. A scorched earth policy when it comes to the truth is never the right approach. I was reading Ephesians this past week and I was just struck by Paul is, is talking a great deal about the new life that we have in Christ. He talks a lot about our words, a lot about speech, and all of the things he says about our words is rooted in a concern for relationship, our interaction with other people. Notice the heart behind Paul's concern for the truth while he's writing to the Ephesians in, in chapter 4. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it can build itself up in love. Notice verse 15, speak the truth in love. Why? In part because we are of one body. We are bound together. Truth is essential for the people of God, but doing it in love is essential for the people of God as well. Paul picks up on this again in just a, a few short verses later. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We must be committed to the truth because we are members of one another. As the people of God, we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to those that are sitting next to you. We belong to one another, and as such, we must be committed to the truth. Paul says the exact same thing, just a few verses later. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only as such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What type of talk must come out of our mouths? Only talk that is good for building up. But this takes wisdom, as Paul knows, because he says it's good for building up as fits the occasion. Our speech has to give grace to the hearers, not as a sword that destroys, but as a balm that gives life. And probably most sobering of all, Paul says that if we don't do this, we grieve the very Spirit of God. What a sobering thought that the words that we speak might grieve the heart of God by how we treat others with our words. We have to be committed to our truth, to the truth, because it is essential for our relationship with other people. You see, at the end of the day, we have to be people who speak the truth for the sake of others and for the sake of our God. Your commitment to the truth or your lack thereof reveals your allegiance whether it is through lying, deceit, exaggeration, flattery, little white lies, it reveals your heart because out of the overflow of the heart, 
the mouth of speech. What if we had tongues that told the truth? What if, in the erosion of truth today, we were a people who were known for our commitment to the truth? What if, in a world that has weaponized the truth, we use the truth out of love and concern for our neighbor? What if we were a people who loved the truth? Let's pray. Father, we first thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have revealed exactly what you are like. Exactly how we might be saved. Exactly how we might bring you much glory and please you with our lives. Exactly how we might treat and are called to treat other people. What a precious gift to have a God who does not leave us astray does not leave us guessing. Thank you. God, we ask that you would help us. Help us to be a people of the truth for our good, for the good of those who are around us, and for your glory. In Jesus' name. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.